Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Vasopressors are a backbone of critical care pharmacology, but there are notable limitations with evidence surrounding their use. This gap often leaves critical care practitioners with more questions than answers. Perhaps the answers to these questions lie in new agents under investigation, or perhaps the answers lie in changing how we use our current agents. Couple those ideas with advancements in the fields of pharmacogenomics and laboratory medicine, and maybe the future of vasopressors becomes clearer. Joining us today is Dr. Michaela Hofer, a critical care pharmacist to weigh in on the future of vasopressor therapies. If you know me, you know that I'm naturally a very fast talker. And unfortunately, the more excited I am about a topic, the faster I talk. So bear with me today as we talk about the future of vasopressor therapy. So in order to talk about the future, we need to talk about the past. My first objective today is to go over what we know about vasopressors and the current limitations. From there, we're gonna review the potential answer, which maybe it's we need more tools in our toolbox. And then finally, we're gonna be talking about um, different advancements in development of biomarkers. And potentially, it's not more tools, but just how we use our current tools, that's the answer. So really, my own personal objective for you today is not only to give you information, but to try to change the way that you think about how we use vasopressors, specifically in treating septic shock. I understand that not everyone here today is a critical care practitioner, so we need to start with what are our common vasopressors. So this is a schematic of a vascular smooth muscle cell. Really, these are our most common vasopressors. We see what happens is we stimulate a receptor and it ends up starting a cascade that results in a muscle contraction. A few of our receptors are the vasopressin receptor that's stimulated by vasopressin. We also have an alpha-1 receptor that's stimulated by phenylephrine, which is pure alpha-1, but then also norepinephrine, dopamine, epinephrine, which also have effects on beta receptors. The reason why I'm calling out these other effects is because this is gonna change how we use these agents when we think about different adverse effect profiles and different efficacy. And then finally, we also have our newest agent, angiotensin II, that stimulates the angiotensin type one receptor. While this is a new agent on the market, I will be talking more about it later in our new toolkit um, since it is so novel. I think a good starting off point to figure out or to understand how we use our current vasopressors is looking at the guidelines. Um, so the most recent iteration of septic guidelines is the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines in 2016. Specifically, I'm gonna focus on the hemodynamic support. And so the first category is fluid therapy. So we know that we need to fluid resuscitate these patients. The typical recommendation is 30 milliliters per kilogram. So think if you have a 70 kilo patient, that's over two or three liters. And then what we're focusing on today is the use of vasopressors. The guidelines recommend targeting a MAP of 65, and then the recommendation is to start with norepinephrine. If you still need more presser, they then recommend adding vasopressin or epinephrine for different rationale. If you still need something else, they say you could consider dopamine or even dobutamine. So as you see from this, the recommendations are quite vague, 
And I'm going to show you there's a very weak quality of evidence behind these recommendations. I also understand that not everyone here, again, is a critical care pharmacist. So what I've put together for you in these next few slides is our crash course in vasopressors for septic shock. I'm going to go through a, through a few different studies very quickly. So the first study I want to talk about is the CATS trial in 2007. This was 330 patients with septic shock, and they were randomized to receive either a combination of norepinephrine and dobutamine or epinephrine. They found no difference in the primary endpoint of 28-day mortality, but they did see a higher lactate in the patients with epinephrine. However, these were unbalanced treatment groups as the epinephrine group was slightly older. The protocol itself didn't quite match what we do in practice. They targeted a slightly higher MAP goal. The patients were under fluid resuscitated. And additionally, the study was underpowered as they were hoping to find a 20% difference in mortality between the treatment groups. So it's really hard to interpret this study. We see somewhat equal efficacy, maybe higher side effects with epinephrine, but again, significant limitations. So the next study looked at just looking at epinephrine versus norepinephrine. However, this study looked at all-comer shock, so not specifically the septic shock population. Only 55% of patients met that population. And so again, a limitation in interpreting this literature they found no difference in their primary endpoint of meeting a MAP goal at 24 hours without vasopressors between the two groups. And instead, they saw more metabolic side effects prompting withdrawal of care in the epinephrine group. So again, maybe a ding against epinephrine, but we see no difference in efficacy. Similar limitations, it was significantly underpowered. We had that heterogeneous population, so how do we really apply it to our septic shock people? And they didn't report any of their adjunctive therapies, so appropriate antibiotic use, things like that. So really, are we even comparing equal groups? We can't say. Uh, one thing I'm going to point out in the other slides that I'm going to call out specifically in this study is looking at an endpoint of 28-day mortality. Now, while this wasn't their primary endpoint, this was something they looked at secondarily, and they found no difference in. So the authors took it a step further, saying, is this even an appropriate endpoint? And what they did was they determined what would the population size have to be to find a 5% difference in mortality with the mortality rate they found and the mortality rate from the previous study, about 25 to 35%. They estimated you would need a population of about 4,000 patients. So this is something that will likely never happen as it's costly and what kind of company would fund a trial that size for agents that are already on the market. But let's move on and see what other literature has to say. We have the VAST trial in 2008 that looked at 778 patients, so slightly larger, and this was specifically back in our septic shock population. These patients were already on norepinephrine, and then they were randomized to either get more norepinephrine or they added on vasopressin. They found no difference in their primary endpoint of 28-day mortality, which According to what I just said, I don't think anyone would be surprised at that. One thing that also I want to call out from the study is they found that while there was decreased norepinephrine requirements in the vasopressin group, there was no decrease in adverse events. And this is important because we'll see in a lot of critical care literature that we're looking at the endpoint of norepinephrine equivalence and can we decrease that dose. But we know if that doesn't translate into a patient outcome, is that really a good endpoint to look at as well? I don't have the answer for that, but I think it's important to think about when we're evaluating this literature. This study did find a trend towards a mortality decrease in a less severe population subgroup. 
I am a statistical purist, some could say, so I don't interpret the trend towards a mortality decrease to mean much, more than being hypothesis generating, that maybe there's a role for vasopressin in a specific subgroup, but what subgroup that is, we still don't know. So again, it was underpowered, and they underreported adjunctive therapies in this trial as well. This leads us to the SOAP2 trial in 2010. This was a larger trial, almost 1,700 patients, but again, an all-comer shock population. Only 60% of these patients had septic shock. They compared norepinephrine to dopamine with, again, the primary endpoint of 28-day mortality, which they found no difference between the two groups. They did find, though, the patients in the dopamine group required more norepinephrine and that they had a higher risk for arrhythmias. And so really what this study was where dopamine fell out of favor and norepinephrine became the first-line vasopressor for septic shock. The VANISH trial came out in 2016 that looked at 400 patients with septic shock, and they were randomized to either a titratable norepinephrine or titratable vasopressin. So if you spent any time in the ICU recently, you realize outside of our cardiac areas, we rarely titrate vasopressin. And so this is something that's different than clinical practice. So again, a limitation in how do we apply this to our day-to-day -day practice. They found no difference in their primary endpoint of 28-day free survival from kidney failure. One thing they did find in this trial was that the patients in the vasopressin group did require less dialysis. However, it's very likely that this was driven by a mortality bias, as there were also more patients in the vasopressin group that died. And so obviously, if you die, you're not going to require dialysis. So again, very similar limitations that we've seen throughout all of our previous literature. And then finally, the last trial I want to call out today was the most recent, the VANKS-2 trial, that specifically looked at septic shock in the cancer population. So the reason they did this is there is some literature out there, evidence out there that norepinephrine might have immunosuppressive effects, and so it's possible that might not be the best presser in the oncology population. So these patients were randomized to either norepinephrine or vasopressin, and I feel like I keep saying the same thing, but they found no difference in their primary endpoint of all-cause mortality at 28 days. They did see the vasopressin group required more norepinephrine. And so again, the same limitations that we've seen throughout all these studies, underreporting of the adjunctive therapies, are we really comparing apples to apples in these groups? So I hope what I've shown you so far is that when we look at the evidence behind these agents, we see very low quality, weak evidence to drive any of our decisions. We also have seen a change in the standard of care over time. The first study I showed you was over 10 years ago. We know we don't practice the same as we did 10 years ago, and so can we really take into account that evidence as uh, our practice today? There were significant flaws in study design of using likely not adequate or equal dosing of different drugs. And then finally, outside of the evidence, we know that these vasopressors all have their own unique side effect profile, and uh, that's something else to be taken into account. We have no safe vasopressor. So because of all these reasons, we have lots of questions. What agent do we use first? Is norepinephrine really the best first drug for everyone? Or should we use vasopressin? Should we use angiotensin II? When do we use these agents? When should we add the first one? When should we add the second one? Is it better to have three agents and do low-dose multimodal vasopressor therapy or to stick with one dose and do high dose? And then which patient do we do all this? Is one drug best for each patient or is this going down into more vasopressin for one person, norepinephrine for another person? Unfortunately, with all the evidence I've shown so far, we don't have the answer to any of these questions. But this brings me to my first poll question. I'll read the case first and then we'll get to the question. 
an 82-year-old male is admitted to the MICU with septic shock. Previously, he was started on norepinephrine in the emergency department to maintain a MAP goal of 65 to 75. Upon admission to the MICU, however, his MAP dropped to 52. Which of the following interventions is supported by high-quality evidence? So uh, to respond to this question, you can respond at pollev.com slash mayorx. You can text mayorx to 22333 or on the app. So the answers are A, increase norepinephrine to high dose because it has been shown to have immunomodulatory benefits in critically ill patients. Increase norepinephrine to high dose because it has been found to have a nonlinear increased efficacy with a low risk of adverse effects. Add high-dose vasopressin to reach a MAP goal of greater than 65, or D, none of the above. So I think I agree with most of the audience. I uh, somewhat didn't give you all the information and address all these points when I talked about, but I think you guys get the right idea about the quality of evidence. So uh, the first answer is incorrect because typically the evidence would support having non-benefit in immunomodulatory effects. B is incorrect. Uh, there's no such thing as a nonlinear increased efficacy. That's something I just made up, and we know that it has adverse effects. High-dose vasopressin in the trial only went up to 0.06, something I didn't mention to you, but again, I did talk about the different dosing. So really, I would agree that we don't have any high-quality evidence behind any of our vasopressor use. So maybe the answer is we just haven't found the right vasopressor. Let's, maybe we need a new tool in our toolbox. I think a good place to stop, start is looking at the vasopressin receptors. Most of us are familiar with vasopressin, but there's also other agents that are either used in Europe or under investigation. To understand the difference between these agents, you need to understand the difference in the vasopressin receptors. So there's really three receptors. Our V1 or V1A receptor is responsible for the vasoconstriction that we typically think about. However, there's also a V3 receptor that releases adrenocorticotropin hormone that's involved in cortisol. And then we have a V2 receptor that is involved in the creation and insertion of aquaporin channels, so water accumulation, and then also releasing a von Willebrand's factor and factor seven, so involved in thromboses, and then vasodilation. So the thought process could be, maybe if we target V1, the beneficial vasoconstriction, and have an agent that doesn't target V2, that we could have a more pure vasoconstrictor with less side effects. And so that was the thought behind celopressin. Celopressin originally um, was studied in 2011, and they found it to be a potent vasoconstrictor in the rat model. So that brought it to a phase two trial, where they found it to be safe. And then the Sepsis Act trial came out in 2019, which was a phase 2B3 trial. Unfortunately, in the septic shock population, it was stopped early for futility, with no difference in their primary endpoint of ventilator and vasopressor-free days. So because of this, I don't know if that's the end for celopressin. At least for the time being, it's not the answer. Back to the vasopressin drawing board. Terlopressin is an agent that while it does target all three receptors, it has much higher affinity for the V1 receptor than the V2 or V3. So similar thought process, but maybe this is the drug that um, will succeed where celopressin failed. I want to call it a couple trials with, ter with terlopressin. The first being Terlovap in 2009, which was a randomized controlled pilot study that looked at the septic shock population defined by the surviving sepsis 2008 definition. Patients were randomized to either receive norepinephrine, terlopressin, or vasopressin. An important thing in this to call out is the dosing. Norepinephrine and vasopressin are fixed doses, 
And while terlipressin is also a fixed dose, it's weight-based. So again, are we, are we comparing appropriate groups here, doing a weight-based and a non-standard otherwise? And then all these groups were also able to receive norepinephrine to meet their MAP goal. What they found in their primary endpoint of norepinephrine requirements is significantly less norepinephrine requirements in the terlipressin group, the black line on the bottom, as opposed to the vasopressin and norepinephrine lines up top. Um, this was seen at 24 hours and sustained out to 60 hours of this study. So again, we see a, a benefit in that we decrease how much norepinephrine we used, but the question is, is what does that even mean? The authors concluded that when given as a first-line vasopressor, it reversed the hypotension and reduced norepinephrine requirements. Um, some other limitations I want to call out is there was more dobutamine use in the terlipressin group, which could that have confounded the results. It was underpowered. There were only 45 patients. I mentioned what does the primary endpoint of norepinephrine requirements even mean for us clinically. They didn't compare equal dosing. It was all fixed dose, but one was weight-based dosing. Is that really fair? And then how do we generalize this to our septic shock patients? But I think there was still some promise there. And so then this led to a 2017 trial that was more individualized. They wanted to look at specifically septic shock in the cirrhosis population. So maybe it's not trilopressin for all, but maybe for the patients with cirrhosis, this is the key. So in this case, patients were randomized to uh, infusion of trilopressin or norepinephrine. And then they were also allowed to have uh, norepinephrine, trilopressin, and steroids with other pressors as needed to meet their goals. Their primary outcome was MAP at MAP greater than 65 at 48 hours. I summarize their findings here. They did find that significantly more people in the terlipressin group met their MAP goal at 48 hours, 90, about 93% versus only 70% the norepinephrine group. They found also greater withdrawal of vasopressor therapy, which makes sense. If you're meeting your MAP goals, you're going to start pulling off other vasopressors. However, they found no difference in success of therapy, which they defined as meeting the MAP goal without having adverse effects, as there were more adverse effects in the terlipressin group. They found improved survival at 48 hours and a decreased mortality with terlipressin, and they found it prevented variceal bleeding at 48 hours, something that's very important in the cirrhosis population. So these findings themselves are somewhat exciting, that there does seem to be some benefit potentially in a specific subgroup, However, like all the studies we've seen, it has similar limitations. It was a very small sample size. We know that there was maybe benefit in cirrhotic patients, but can we apply this to any other populations or is it specifically just for them? And one thing I didn't point out previously is while they did find a difference in MAP at 48 hours, there was no difference in the MAP trend before the 48 hours. So really, is this even an appropriate endpoint, or can we really interpret it that it was beneficial if it, there's no difference for two days with its use? So to summarize what we've seen with our vasopressin analogs, it could be a new tool as it's another non-adrenergic vasopressor. We know that targeting the V1 receptor um, could decrease the fluid accumulation, the microvascular thromboses, and the vasodilation we see with the V2 receptor. However, when we had the pure solopressin, we saw that there was no difference in their primary endpoint. And then with terlipressin, we did see a decrease in norepinephrine requirements and median a MAP goal and a specific benefit in cirrhotic patients. However, how do we apply these results? Can we extrapolate our terlipressin results to celopressin? Would celopressin be beneficial for patients with liver disease? Is there a benefit to other shocks of populations? Is there a benefit with just monotherapy terlipressin, or does it have to be with other vasopressors? And then how do we even dose it? Is it a flat dose? Is it weight-based dosing? 
we still have similar questions that we have with all of our other previous tools. Very quickly, I want to talk about angiotensin II. We know it's already in the market. Many people are familiar with it. But because it's new and still finding its place in therapy, I think it's important to uh, discuss. So most people are familiar with the mechanism. Angiotensinogens converted into angiotensin one with renin, then converted angiotensin two by ACE. And then after it activates the angiotensin II type one receptor, we cause vasoconstriction along with other effects in the body. The ATHOS-3 trial was the approval trial that looked at patients with vasodilatory shock that were already on norepinephrine and it was early shock. And then patients were randomized to either angiotensin II or placebo. Now, one thing I think that's interesting to discuss with this study, as I call back to my previous point about endpoints, um, these authors didn't target 28-day mortality as their primary endpoint, which some of us are like, yay, finally, right. Um, however, they targeted a MAP response at three hours. And this was really to show efficacy of angiotensin II. Does it show the increase that we expect? And they found that it did. So there was a higher number of patients in the angiotensin II, about 70 patients, that met that MAP response at hour three versus only about 23% in placebo. They also found a significant difference in the cardiovascular SOFA score or the degree of organ function or failure. Um, they found a difference in norepinephrine requirements from baseline to hour three, which makes sense. If the angiotensin II is working, we're probably going to come down to norepinephrine. But they found no difference in the secondary mortality endpoints. So while I think it is, again, an exciting result, we still don't fully understand what its benefit could be. Some other limitations I think important to call it with this agent is, while I commend the authors for not having mortality as their primary endpoint, what does that endpoint actually mean for us? Just because we can target a MAP of 75, is that something our patients and our patient families are going to care about? Additionally, it was underpowered to detect things that we do care about, the mortality difference, vasopressor-free days, length of stay, and to rule out any adverse events. They didn't have any data on their fluid resuscitation, so hard to compare these groups in that regard. There's no assessment of angiotensin II versus other high-dose vasopressors. And there was likely inadvertent blinding with angiotensin II. So if you've ever used it and you've had a responder, they respond quite dramatically, quite quickly. Um, so then finally, how do we generalize this to the rest of our septic shock population? Um, so this next section, um, I'm going to introduce one more drug. And this was under investigation. And this is one that I get very excited about. So bear with me. Uh, here we have a schematic of uh, vascular smooth muscle cells in the interstitium surrounding the endothelium surrounding the blood. In a healthy state, there's a healthy level of smooth muscle relaxation and vasodilation. This molecule called adrenal medullin freely diffuses between the blood and the interstitium. And it plays a couple different roles in the body. The first is that it provides barrier function. So it stabilizes the endothelial barrier when it's in the blood. Additionally, when it's in the interstitium, it causes vascular smooth mu muscle relaxation. So two different mechanisms. Where this comes in is more of a sepsis-targeted therapy. So in the sepsis state, we know that sepsis decreases the barrier function, causing leaky vessels. We also know that sepsis causes vasodilation, and it also upregulates adrenal medullin. So the thought process behind this adricizumab is it's a monoclonal antibody that binds to adrenal medullin in the blood, stopping it from being able to freely diffuse to the interstitium, thereby increasing the concentration in the blood, decreasing the concentration in the interstitium, 
and thereby restoring the barrier stabilizing effects of endothelium and decreasing adrenomedulin's effect on the vascular smooth muscle relaxation, ideally leading to vasoconstriction. So like I said, this is a novel drug. It's still under investigation, um, but something that we may be seeing coming down the pipeline that's more targeted for septic shock. So to summarize what we've talked about so far, there are some new tools that we're looking at for our toolkit. We have vasopressin analogs, angiotensin II, it's already on the market, and likely more to come from adrocizumab. However, we're seeing the exact same limitations that we saw with our previous vasopressors. We have low quality of evidence. We don't know how to use them. Are they better as monotherapy or combination therapy? We don't know the best way to dose them. Is weight-based dosing better or fixed dosing? How do we mitigate side effects? Because more tools just adds more side effects at this point. And then we haven't seen a benefit in shock all comers. So the question is, is there still a benefit if we target a population? Are there specific subgroups that benefit from specific agents? And this leads me into really what I want you to take away from today and the future of vasopressors is individualization. To understand individualization, we all need to be on the same page about what a biomarker is. Most of us in healthcare are familiar with it. But really, a biomarker is a host characteristic, either a gene or a molecule that can help with identifying either a pathologic or a physiologic process. Clinically, the ideal biomarker is something that would be a bedside test that's easily obtainable, so blood, saliva, et cetera, and that can affect our clinical decision-making so we can make an action on the result. There are really three categories of biomarkers. The first being diagnostic, so this is things that help us diagnose, determining infectious versus non-infectious or the right causative organism for the infection. An example of a diagnostic biomarker is procalcitonin. So that is something that we see in the ID world sometimes to determine whether to start therapy or not, but more likely the duration of antibiotic use. For a prognostic biomarker, this is something that we assign risk profiles to, predict outcome, and then stratify based on the pathophysiology. This is something we see a lot in the cancer world. So something like the BRCA gene is a prognostic biomarker. And by far in our sepsis world, most biomarkers under investigation are under the prognosis category. And then finally, we have theragnostic biomarkers. So this is the things that are gonna help us evaluate our therapy, and this is gonna be the key to personalized medicine. An example of this is something as simple as an APTT or an anti-10A. It's a level that we get that helps us determine appropriate therapy and changing of dosing, et cetera. So specifically, if now we pivot at how can biomarkers be used in vasopressor therapy, there's a few different categories. One, we can use biomarkers to hopefully enhance the efficacy of our current vasopressors. And so targeting the right presser for the right patient. Additionally, along the same lines, we can use them to target safety for the patient. So either finding the most safe agent or finding the most safe level of a vasopressor for a patient. And then also, as we saw with the adrocizumab, using biomarkers to enhance our drug development. Now, I don't think the answer necessarily is more tools in the toolbox. I do think that this is important for having more effective vasopressor therapies. So specifically, when we look at the biomarkers that are involved in sepsis, there are a lot under investigation. And I'm not going to go through all these. I just wanted to call to your attention that even if we look at just the vasopressors part of sepsis, we see a lot of different markers that people are investigating either for prognosis or potential drug development. So then the question is, is well, why don't we see this more? Why don't we see this now? 
And really it's because it's a very arduous, expensive process to bring a biomarker to bedside. So the scientific aspect is what we just talked about, the benchtop research of not only identifying a biomarker and figuring out its role, but then you also have to make a clinical kit, something that can be used quickly and inexpensive at the bedside. From then, there's extensive regulation that goes into every biomarker. And then from there, there's commercial use, so figuring out cost, insurance coverage, et cetera. So it's a very long process, but Fortunately, there are some different biomarkers that are under investigation. Now it's very new, and so what I'm presenting is gonna be probably not exciting for as you all as you were hoping, but I still think that this is the future and uh, there will be takeaways. So the first thing I wanna talk about is that adrenomedulin. I introduced it as the adrocizumab drug. So when we look at it as a biomarker, really the study that did this was the Adrenos-1 study in 2017. And this was an observational study that wanted to look at the levels of adrenomedulin to determine if there was any prognostication. And so they looked at 583 patients with sepsis or septic shock. And you'll see on the dark line up top is going to be the patients with low levels of adrenomedulin. And the patients in the gray line had much higher levels of adrenomedulin. And we see that patients were more likely to survive with that lower level of adrenomedulin. And so I looked at the primary outcome of 28-day mortality. So then the next step would be, well, can we use this drug to target outcomes? Is it possible, so we see that their natural levels correlate to a prognosis. If we give them this drug, does it change anything? And so that's the thought process behind the Adrenos 2 trial that actually had results originally presented at a symposium last fall. They found that the drug itself was safe and that they found blood levels had changed. However, we haven't correlated with any outcomes yet. The actual literature itself hasn't been published, but I think that there shows there'll be more to come using adrenomedulin and the adrocizumab drug for individualized pressors for these patients. Also uh, exciting is the angiotensin 1 to 2 ratio. And so in the ethos 3 authors, they decided to look at these different levels of angiotensin 1 and 2 in their trial. What they found is that healthy individuals have a ratio of angiotensin 1 to 2 of about 0.5. However, patients in the ethos 3 trial with septic shock, their ratio was 1.63. So meaning these patients had a much higher level of angiotensin 1, or we call it an angiotensin 2 deficiency. And so what they wanted to do is look at this ratio and its outcomes with mortality. They found patients with a low angiotensin II ratio, or low angiotensin II state, actually had increased 28-day mortality. So this did translate into something that we care about. Now what's really exciting though is the question is, okay, so does it make a difference if we give them angiotensin II? And the authors did see the patients that received angiotensin II that had this deficient state, their risk of mortality was attenuated with angiotensin II. So, Potentially, if we were able to create a bedside test to measure this ratio, we could quicker determine if a patient's going to respond or not, and if this is the right drug for them. With that said, angiotensin II is not the easiest to get at the bedside at this point in time. It's expensive and takes time. So, other very smart people have thought, well, what other biomarker could be? Renin is a less expensive biomarker um, that has an FDA-approved test. And so authors of ethos 3 also thought about that. And they wanted to look at different renin levels and if they correlated with outcomes. And then again, divided into our different angiotensin groups. What they found 
They divided the patients into two groups, patients below the median of renin and patients above the median of renin. Patients below the study median of renin, meaning they probably weren't angiotensin II deficient, had no difference in any of the endpoints whether they received angiotensin II or not. However, our patients that were above the median, so they had high renin levels, likely were deficient angiotensin II, they had a significantly lower 28-day mortality if they received angiotensin II. They also were off dialysis quicker and out of the ICU. So again, this is all uh, very just hypothesis generating early stages, nothing that we're gonna see clinically anytime soon. But still, uh, I believe this will be the future of answering a lot of the problems we saw in the earlier literature. To summarize what we talked about today, the evidence surrounding our current vasopressors don't support a mortality benefit. In fact, there's not a lot of evidence that they do support. The vasopressors that I introduced with new mechanisms of action still have a lot of the same limitations that our current vasopressors have. So in the future, instead of adding more tools to our toolbox, I think the key is gonna be how we use these tools and having a more of a theranostic approach with the use of biomarkers. This brings me to another Poll Everywhere question. You can respond at pollev.com slash mayorx, text mayorx to 22333 or respond on the app. What is the mechanism of action of adrocizumab? It increases the sensitivity of the heart to calcium, thus increasing cardiac contractility without a rise in intracellular calcium. It's a selective vasopressin V1A receptor agonist. It's a neutralizing antibody against adrenal medullin that leads to stabilized endothelial barriers. Or it's a non-neutralizing antibody against adrenal medullin that leads to stabilized endothelial barriers. So I think I tricked you all on this one, and that it is unique and that's a non-neutralizing antibody. So it binds to adrenal medullin, as answer D says, but it doesn't allow it to move to the interstitium. It keeps it in the blood. So it still has its same effects, it just changes the location. A is not correct, it's actually a mechanism of action of levosimendin, a different presser under investigation, more in the cardiac world. And then celopressin is the vasopressor uh, with mechanism action for B, and then we discussed neutralizing versus non-neutralizing antibody. Uh, last question. The majority of evidence surrounding biomarkers in sepsis have been related to their potential role in A, diagnosis, B, severity analysis, C, prognosis prediction, or D, monitoring response to intervention. And while I think that having a biomarker for sepsis for all of these would be awesome, really under investigation right now, most is prognosis prediction. Um, I'm hoping in the future that we'll have more targeted for the monitoring response intervention, as I think that will help us target our vasopressor therapies better. But the correct answer is C. Thank you all for your time today. I will say one other thing before I get to your questions. One exciting thing, I had mentioned that there's investigations underway about looking at renin as a biomarker for angiotensin II therapy. Um, there's actually research being done here at Mayo. Uh, one of our pharmacists, Dr. Vera Shevsky, uh, he is looking at this. So I'm sure if you had any other questions or want to know more about it too, I could put you in connection with him. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.